John chapter 8, let's get to work. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, one last time, we'll tell this story. They brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone, to execute, by throwing rocks until they're dead, such women. Now, what do you say? Now, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis of accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, when they kept on questioning him and pressed him, he, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, we've looked at this from a lot of different angles, but I think the one that we need to look at it from this morning is it's just, it's just perspective. Why is it the Pharisees see one thing, Jesus sees another, the crowd sees another, the woman herself sees another? What, what is it about this power of perspective, and what's the most powerful perspective for us to have? What is it about what Jesus sees, what Jesus hears, what Jesus knows that causes him to behave, to react towards her completely different than everybody else in the crowd? Now, the crowd says nothing in the story. We don't know what they say. The Pharisees, they won't shut up. We know exactly what they're thinking, why they're doing it. The motives are laid out. But Jesus, we, we don't really get this glimpse. Like, he doesn't say, because I feel this or because I believe that or because I experienced this as a child, I'm doing this now. There's no background story. So we, we were left to kind of guess what is it that's really motivating Jesus to behave the way that he's behaving. What can we learn from his example? And the first thing that comes out very clearly is that his love is greater than her sin. Come on, somebody say amen. Because if that ain't true, we're all in big trouble. Right? His love automatically, we see that. Do we not see that, true or false? His love obviously is greater than her sin. He doesn't look at her sin and say, well, I would have loved you, but Jesus saw through, he saw her through this decision called love. Now, everybody say decision. It is true that love is a feeling. It is true that feelings are associated with love, especially the romantic love, the eros love, the phileo, the, the friendship love. Here comes the paparazzi. You hear that too, right? I'm not passing out? Okay, good. And, and what happens is when Jesus sees her, he's already made a decision about all mankind. Understand this. You cannot behave like Jesus behaves until you make the decisions Jesus has made. And so when he sees her, He's already made a decision about everybody he's ever going to meet. They all get treated equally, sacrificially, powerfully, beautifully by this one decision, and the decision is this. I am not here to condemn. I am here to love. There will be condemnation. There will be judgment, but that's not the season he's in. The season he's in right now is everybody walks up a sinner who can be saved by his grace, benefited by his love, brought from darkness into light. Jesus sees a woman. He doesn't see a woman caught in the act of adultery. Does this make sense? Why? Because it's love. When Jesus uh, weighs his treatment of her, somehow he, his, the weight of his love is greater than the weight of her sin. And let me just say this to you. The decision to love people is not to be taken lightly. <laughs> now, you may say, well, I, you know, I only have a couple people in my life. That's because you've made a decision about loving people. When you look at all mankind and say they're all worthy of love, it is a weighty thing. Jesus makes it clear, like, who is my neighbor? What's my ministry? Well, he tells us the parable of the Good Samaritan, which basically, if I can break that down, he says, the next person you meet that has a need that you can do something about, that's your ministry. And never let your ministry be larger than the next person you meet. 
which is like in time could be so many thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of people. I spent last week in Dallas, walking around downtown Dallas. It is like armpits and elbows everywhere you go, man. You're just to wait for the light to change. You're just standing there with a mass of people from all over the world speaking different languages. The light turns green, everybody goes their way. And I, by the way, I had no idea who shot JFK. That's another fruit of this last week in Dallas. It was terrible. But Jesus, when he looks at this, he's already made a decision about mankind, and in the end, it's going to cost him everything. Why, why is that? Because love is the costly, committed, consistent choice to treat someone, to treat others for their highest good, regardless of what they do in return. Now, can we just read that together? Can you guys read that from where you're at? If I can read it from here, you can read it. Ready? Say this with me. Love is the choice to treat for their Can you see how that could cost you a lot? And anybody here married, can you see how that could ruin your day but make your life? Can you, anybody work with a difficult boss, can you see where that would make your day harder, not easier, but could make that office atmosphere completely change? Can you see why love is the greatest choice, but love has the greatest expense associated with it? When Paul is trying to describe what love is, he starts with, with patience. How many guys love patience? And he ends with, it never quits. It doesn't give up. So anything that's sandwiched between patience and endurance, you know it's not going to be pleasurable. Love is patient. Anybody ever felt patient? No, patience. I don't ever feel patient. Patience costs me something. It's the costly, committed, consistent choice to be patient, to be kind, to be gentle, not to boast, not to be proud, not to be rude. It's, it's, this, it's this horribly powerfully demanding, glorious, never-failing way in which we are all called to treat each other. And it'll cost you everything, but I believe it's not a cost, it's an investment. Because I've never loved someone that later I regretted loving them. In the short term, yes. In the long term, no. That guy didn't deserve my love. That girl didn't deserve my love. But eventually, it's kind of like if I had to go back and do it again, I'd treat them just as good as I treated them before because treating somebody right is always the right thing to do. There's no exceptions, right? He was honest. Jesus' love is not blind here. He talks about a life of sin. This isn't what you know, some people call sloppy agape. Well, don't worry about sins. No big deal. The big upstairs. This isn't sloppy agape. Jesus both confronts her sin, but he sees something beyond her sin that has value because of love. Jesus made really the only choice that love can make, and that is to believe in her at the expense of himself. And don't kid yourself. By believing in her, some people decided that Jesus wasn't the real deal because he wasn't as holy as the Pharisees were. Some people didn't like him for what he said, including the Pharisees who then go off to plot his execution. Remember this, guys. The only person in that crowd that was qualified to throw that stone was Jesus. And can I say this too? If he had decided to execute her, he would have been no less God for having done so because the law was clear. That might blow your theology out, but understand, the only person qualified to throw that stone was Jesus. He decided not to. Why? Because his love for her was greater than the sin that she committed. Let's talk about his perspective for a second. Because she was greater in Jesus' eyes than what she'd done. Jesus has this ability to see past actions, to see potential. My wife has that ability. She... um, she has this ability to pick people out of life that go, that person's really something. I'm like, yeah, aren't they? She's like, no, no, they really are something. 
I'm like, I know, they drive me, no, 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 you don't say, like, there's a gift inside of that young man, there's a gift inside of that young lady, there's a, I know that they drive you nuts, but listen, we, underneath that crusty exterior, there's a person of such grace and beauty, Jim, you got to love it out of them, I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to love it out of them, you know what I mean, like, no, no, you got to be patient with them, you got to be kind to them, it's like, I would, but they're such jerks, and they drive me nuts, she's like, listen, yeah, I see something, I, I remember when we first got married, I knew everything, and my wife knew nothing, when we first got married. All I knew about her was that she had great taste in men. But beyond that, I knew nothing, right? She knew nothing. I was the wise sage. I was older. I was in ministry, you know. Man, I tell you what, I learned something. My wife has a gift of discernment. She can, she can shake somebody's hand and know if they're in pain. And she can look someone in the eye and tell, tell them their destiny. She just has this beautiful gift of knowing people without really knowing them. And I've learned to trust my wife's discernment about folks. Because she sees what isn't there and then within, like, just a short time, like 10 years, it's there. 10 years of sowing the same seeds, good stuff comes back. The Pharisees did good things, but they were bad people. And Jesus sees this. This woman had done a bad thing, but there was something beneath all of that that she was going to be in greatness. And he called it out of her. She was greater than what she'd done. She, she was greater than what she'd done. And, and, and understand this, guys. How we choose to see someone really predetermines most of the outcomes in our relationships. Did you get that? Somebody walks out. I remember I had this kid named Vic. He was on our, our, the last youth group in Mesa, Arizona. I'm sorry, first youth group in Mesa, Arizona, where my wife and I got married. He walked in. He had just come from the Percussion Institute in Los Angeles. He was a rock and roll drummer, had hair down to his waist, and was kind of a skinny kid and, and was a fabulous musician. He wanted to play on the worship team. And I said, you know, remember how long ago this was? This is like the mid-'80s. And it was, I was just kind of like, well, you know, you get a haircut and find Jesus, we'll talk about playing the worship band, but right now, if I let you play worship band, like the old people would throw me out and fire me, because you, you, you don't look right, and he, and he said, well, that's cool, I understand some people don't get me, and, and he, I thought, well, I, I kind of expected him to hit the religious wall of gym and bounce off and take off, he came back the next week and the next week, plus he was like 18, 19 years old, a little too old to be in the youth group, I didn't trust him, I didn't like him, he was somebody's cousin that I did like and trust, so he said, no, he's totally cool, you'll love him, just give him time, get past the hair, get past the, the Los Angeles language, and not foul language, but just the, yeah, dude, what's up, yo, yo, I'm like, hey, don't yo-yo me, man, you know what I mean, just speak English, remember, I'm ex-military, he ain't, you know you know what I'm saying? So there was this clash of culture, and I, but I watched him and watched him and watched him and watched him, and he set up his drums in the youth room. I was very respectful, and eventually I gave him a key so he could go into practice. I didn't tell my pastor, but I gave him a key to the church and the alarm code, and he would go in and practice, and he was a fabulous musician, but beyond that, Vic was a fabulous man of God who was, he was in ministry in the music scene in Los Angeles at 19 years old. What I'm saying is this. I I prejudged the exterior of a man believing I knew the outcome. Jesus never did that. Jesus always had a way of seeing past the long hair, which probably every guy had. You know what I mean? He had a way of seeing past even what people had done to say, I believe that you're greater than your accomplishments coming together. The Pharisees, though, identity is what you've done. But Jesus, identity is what I've done for you and what I choose to call you. Man, that's huge, right? If, we are deter- if, if, if our identity comes out of what we own, what we owe, what we know, who we know, where we've been. I mean, if I can look at somebody's wall and see all their accomplishments and trophies and medals or felony records and probation officer, you know, notes, I, I can look at I can judge them, but Jesus never did. He didn't care about what we'd done. He cared about who we were. And there's this ability as a parent, if you were to look into a naughty child and see a good man someday. And Jesus had that. He was, he was eternal in his patience 
with people. Pharisees called her a woman caught in the act of adultery. This is who she is. Jesus said, woman. Do you realize when he says to her, woman, he's calling her the exact same thing Adam called his wife Eve before there was ever sin in the world. Woman, caught in the act of adultery. No, no, just woman. Let me tell you something. It doesn't matter what the world calls you. It matters what God calls you. It doesn't matter what the world says you've done or haven't done. It matters what God says you've done or haven't done. And what God has done for us is the greatest defining thing that will ever be done. And really the most shocking thing to me of all is, is this one. He considered himself in that moment less than her. Now try to wrap your brain around this one. The Pharisees are constantly getting at the expense of others. They're, they're bribing Judas to betray Jesus. They're conspiring to execute an innocent man because he's causing them loss. They're all about consolidating. They're all about consorting. They're all about, you know, having their, their little clique, their circle. They, they were, what was that, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. When you stand as, as like the man of God in front of a nation, I mean, they're under Rome, but they could say God said this and everybody had to obey or they were disobeying God. Like, this is a dangerous position for people to be in. This is why I tell you, listen, read your Bible. And if I ever say something that ain't right, then buy me a coffee, correct me, I'll come back the next Sunday and make it right because I don't know everything. Like, I, I'd rather we had the heart of Bereans and search the Bible regularly to make sure that what was being said was true than to say, well, if Jim said it, it must be true. Like, if Jim said it, it's totally open for, for questioning. Just two, that's right. But I'll take it. I know the rest of you meant it, you know. So the Pharisees are getting. Jesus is always giving at the expense of himself. Jesus never tolerates sin. And so they had this conflict. And piano boy, piano girl, join me if you would. The, the, this, this confluence of issues. He doesn't tolerate sin, but there's a person who's committed a really grievous sin that's right in front of him. So what's about to happen? Like, how do you resolve both his love and righteousness. If the wage of sin is death, how is, how is she going to survive? But, but if love will lay down its life for another, how, how will this not be judged? And this is what takes place is Jesus doesn't tolerate her sin. He dies for her sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 is a verse that has confounded me. It's, it hasn't troubled me, but it's, it boggles me. Is that a good way to say that? Like, I don't, I get it. I can quote it to you, but really saying I understand it, I, I might have an elementary understanding of what I think is a, a collegial um, institutional truth. And it says this, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for he made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you, do you see the, the incredible extremes that are being described with human language? He made him who knew no sin. God made Jesus who knew no sin. Now get this. To become sin for us. So that it just got really dark. I'm sorry. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we may become the righteousness of God. I, uh, do you understand what I'm saying about an elementary understanding? You could probably quote it. Most of you right now just by saying it a few times, you could quote that back. But can anybody here say, yeah, I know what that means. I, I can't grasp that until you come to things like this, Romans 5. You see, it's just the right time when we were still powerless, 
Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will someone, anyone, die for a righteous person. Though for a good, that means perfect person. Someone might, might possibly dare to die. I'll jump in front of the bullet believing that my life means nothing. You, you have to live. Our nation needs you or the world needs you. or I, I'm nothing compared to you. Like Maybe for a, a perfect person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love. There's that word again. For us, here we are in this. While we were still sinners... Christ dies for us. He who know no sin became sin so that we could become righteous to the same measure of God. Anybody wrap their brain around that one yet? So let's, let's wrap it up. And, and I think maybe this last minute is going to be important. So this is the way, true or false, that Jesus saw a woman who had done the worst thing she'd ever done. Is that true? I think it is. So let's ask a question. What if we began the journey of following Christ in this area and we saw people the same way Jesus saw people? How many of you guys are glad the Pharisees brought her to Jesus that day and not to court the next day when Jesus wasn't there? That encounter with someone who saw her, not her deeds, changed everything for her in that moment. Good historical evidence that this woman is Mary Magdalene who was possessed by seven demons who... Um, is the, the sister of Martha, um, the brother uh, named Lazarus, who's raised from the dead, who, again, because of Bethany, and the, it's a small town, there's a few people, but there's a Pharisee named Simon. Some of, and I'm, I'm along the lines of that, that Simon the leper, who's a Pharisee, is also another name for him is, is uh, you, you know, the, the one that was raised from the dead. And I, as I'm watching this, that's true, then this woman who's forgiven is also the woman that breaks an alabaster jar of perfume and puts it on his feet and, and cries and, and weeps and puts perfume on his head and anoints him for his burial. If that's true, this is the same woman who's standing next to another Mary who's Jesus' mother and is watching as Jesus is being crucified. All the disciples but John have ran away. Judas has hung himself. He's dead, betrayed him. It's, it's, a, it's a horribly terrifying moment, and everybody's at risk, but instead of running to save her life, she'd rather die with the one who was willing to die for her as he does and I look at this beautiful scene and if that's true this is the way Jesus saw a woman who had done the worst thing she'd ever do and, and I ask the question what if we saw people the same way then there's this last statement and it's just simply this I think the only way for us to get there is to believe that it starts with seeing ourselves as God sees us would you stand your feet nobody leave that clock says I have two and a half minutes I'm going to use them all I want to milk the cow till the last drop comes out. Look right here, please. I'm not sure, but I have a sneaky hunch that this whole three-week journey has not been about just Easter or just how bad Pharisees are or how Jesus sees us uh, as, as good or, you know, beyond our, our deeds. I don't think it's just been about raise your hand and say a prayer. I think those have been beautiful, fruitful moments in the journey. But I, I was just praying this morning, sitting on the ball field, and I felt like the Lord was saying, it really has come down to that last sentence. Because there, there really is no way for us to be this until we believe this. This makes sense? How would I look at someone after they'd done the worst thing they'd ever done and believed in them unless I truly believed that when God saw the worst thing I ever did, he believed in me? This makes sense? 
you, you can't make a withdrawal from something that's never been deposited. How do I give away love unless I've been loved? How do I give away truth unless I've believed and been given the truth? How do I, how do I impart faith if I don't believe? How do I, how do I live in mercy if I don't believe I live in mercy? How do I give away something I don't have? And so in the final moments of three weeks that have been glorious and wonderful and beautiful, I just would say to this to you, I, none of it really matters until you believe it. None of it really happens until in your heart you begin to see yourself as God sees you, and that is past your deeds, having made the decision to love you, lowering himself to be what lifts you up, becoming sin, so that you might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Does this make sense? Well, you guys are quiet today. You okay? Too many late nights, spring break, Disney? I get it. May the spirit of Disney come off us. Amen. Close your eyes and let me just pray for you. Father, we, it seems like a recurring theme today has been a decision or a choice that we are to make. Uh, if it's well with our soul or not, it's not just up to you. There's a reciprocating act on earth that unlocks your power from heaven. When your kingdom come and your will is done, it's not, it's not because you just sovereignly did it. It's, it's because we welcomed, we expected, we asked, we sought, we knocked, and then doors were open and chains fell off and angels flew and nations were saved and revivals took place. God, it's, we have a lot to do with what you do. If that woman with the issue of blood had never reached out and touched the hem of her garment, she would have died sick. But she was healed because she reached out and grabbed hold of something that she knew somehow was hers. Your blood, your stripes had not yet taken place. She actually reached into a, a different age of something that wasn't physically available to a spiritual realm that, that was waiting for someone just to reach out and grab a hold of it. And I believe, God, today, all that has to be done, I mean, it is finished. If she could reach past the blood barrier to be healed in that moment, we can reach past uh, something that has no barriers to it. You died for our sins. You trust us with a free will. You love us without condition. A choice has been made. And before we can love as you love us, then we have to allow you to love us. <laughs> we cannot love our neighbor as we love ourselves unless we love ourselves. And we cannot love ourselves unless we're agreeing with the one whose word is true. God, I pray today. I ask you, God, today to open our hearts. Do this right now. Come on, just open your heart. Lift your hands if you want to. God, love me. God, give me a revelation of who you are. Give me a revelation of who I am in you. That he who knew no sin becomes sin for me. That I might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The cyclical failures of religion. Where I feel good, so I, I get loose and I do bad. But then I feel bad so that I do good. Because the pain reminds me, the guilt, the shame, there's a weight to it. So I don't repeat sin, but eventually that weight goes away and I feel good. And then just on and on and on it goes. God, I pray against the cycles of sin and shame that are just so, so prevalent in, in religious mindsets. God, I pray, he who the sun sets free is free indeed. And I pray, Jesus, set us free today. Once and for all, help us to see what you see when you look at us. Help me to see what you see when you look at me. Believe in me that I might believe in me. And beyond that, believe in you, God. For greater things shall we do in your name when we believe. And I pray that over these people, God. I pray that a process, let a journey begin. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would teach us your word. And I ask 
for the miracles that are needed to be done quickly, powerfully, irrevocably, without misunderstanding. May, we, may the pure at heart see God every day. God, I thank you that you've opened a door that no man can close. And I pray now, God, if I could, I'd push everybody through it. <laughs> but it's an invitation for them to come. And I pray, let us walk through the doors that you've opened to us. Help us to see what you see. And then help us to do what you do and say what you say and be what you would have us to be, God, on this earth. In Jesus' name. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. You say, Jim, I needed this today. Or you say, no, nah, I, I need more than this today. I need, I need my sins to be forgiven. I need a clean slate, a fresh start. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If you're here today and you're like, I'm not right with God. I, I, need, I need forgiveness of my sins. I need everything that's between my heart and God's heart to be removed. But I, beyond that, can I have this other stuff too? Yes. That's the great thing. All of his promises are yes and amen. All of his promises. Everything, all the prophetic promises, all the New Testament promises, all the, the, the bedrock promises, all, they're all yes and amen. It isn't like God has to make up his mind individually whether or not he's going to choose to love you. It's yes. It's amen. He loves you. It's done. It's, it's a finished work. And he'll love you to the day you die and beyond. But if you need him today, I'm going to ask you just this last closing moment here. Raise your hand just so I can simply pray specifically for you. If that's you, raise your hand right now. This is for me today. I needed this. I need, I need an encounter with God. I need a fresh start, a clean slate. I need to know that I know that I know. I need to walk through that door. So, Father, for every raised hand and a simple act of faith, but I believe simple acts of faith trigger profound heavenly reactions, responses, reciprocations. And I pray today, God, that beyond all they thought, all they've asked, all they'd imagined, you would flood the end of their world, God, so powerfully and beautifully and lovingly. Teach your hearts to follow hard after you, God, I pray. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for loving us. Help us to do the same for ourselves and then others in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to say one last time. I don't know why. I'm trying to get out of this. I'm trying to get you out of here, but I, you are not what you have done you are not what you have done. Caught in the act of adultery. That, that's not what God calls you. Woman caught in the act of adultery. Caught in, man caught in the act of whatever man is. That's not what God calls you. You are, in his eyes, what Jesus has done for you. He sees through the blood. That is your identity. And if you're still questioning it, stop it. I'll be your psychiatrist for a second. I, I just, okay, stop it. I, my dad never, stop it. Stop it. God bless you with a revelation of who you are as he sees you. And you walk in that revelation so boldly, so beautifully, so lovingly, so, so consistently, so patiently, so kindly, that you become what Jesus calls the light of the world, that shines a sign that points towards him, the salt of the earth that, that affects everything you come in contact with. May you be the wise sage, regardless of generation. May you be so blessed that your blessings overflow into a dry and thirsty world that needs people just like you. God created you for just such a time as this. Do not waste this time. Amen? Say amen or I'll preach it all over again. All right, so that's a good amen. All right. Live long and prosper. God bless you guys. I'll see you back in the guest room. Altar workers, you need prayer, come forward at this time. And Sydney, thanks again for playing piano at 12. You're amazing. That was, that's incredible.